0: of we'll the congregation of the Lord, as we begin our message this morning, I'd like you to turn in the back of your psalters to page 42 and look with me at the words of our catechism there in um, Lord's Day 14. Page 42. What is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Answer, that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, and that he might also... Be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things sin excepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? Answer, that he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Well, beloved congregation, we continue with our series through the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, and I wonder how, if you know, how this tradition began um, in the Reformed churches. Well, as as you know, these uh, words of the Heidelberg Catechism—they are one of the confessional standards of the Reformed churches. They lay forth in a in a simple summary what all the uh, churches. Um, believe that hold to the Reformed faith, and uh, they do so in a way that sets forth the scriptural proof for those. And so the way this uh, began at, uh, originally was that the minister in the afternoon of, um, of the Lord's Day would gather the children together and would explain to them uh, the most important doctrines um, of the scripture and, and explain that to them. And over time, it, it became evident that it's not only that children should be reminded about the really central things about biblical teaching, the, the very foundational pillars of the saving message of the gospel. No, indeed, we all need to be reminded of these things. They need to be preached on regularly. And so the way we use these uh, Lord's Days in our catechism is not to elevate the words of any uh, human document, but rather as a guide to bring us into the teaching of the Scripture and that more more deeply. And of course now we're uh, working through that section of the catechism, which is Explaining uh, the doctrines that are summarized in the Apostles' Creed. So every afternoon service, we confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed, which include these words We believe he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We have here um, an explanation of what it means that. Our Lord Jesus was born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit. With the Lord's help, let's consider uh, that theme, looking at a number of texts, but focusing especially on Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And we'll look at that under the theme of Christ's conception and birth. Christ's conception and birth. And I hope to see uh, three things from our uh, study this morning. And the first would be the two natures of Christ, the two natures of Christ. Second, Christ's fulfillment of prophecy, Christ's fulfillment of prophecy. And third, Christ's sinlessness, Christ's sinlessness. So you notice how our uh, catechism begins to answer this uh, question that's uh, put before us. What is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. It answers in this way, that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man and of the flesh of the Virgin Mary by the operation of of the Holy Ghost. Now uh, in the previous uh, Lord's day, it had been especially the divinity of Christ that was focused upon, that the Lord Jesus is the Son of God. He is truly equal to the Father in all things. He is God. And now, lest we um, mistake the true meaning of the gospel, you see that it's also emphasized in our catechism that he is also true man. For it says he took the very nature of man. And the word nature simply means all that makes a man or a human being what he is. So we have here a teaching concerning the two natures of Christ, his nature as God and his nature as man. And I think the the text in which we uh, read in Uh, this worship service, um, especially sets forth both of those truths. And it's important that we uh, look at the scriptural teaching on this because it's so central to what we believe about the gospel. So look with me again at Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us. A son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, I'm sure that uh, anyone who's been a parent uh, knows what a very special thing a birth announcement is. Whenever a new child is born into your family, you want to get out the news to everyone as soon as possible, don't you? And, uh, you know, the kind of questions that are likely to be asked. What was the weight of the child? Was this uh, child born uh, healthy? And of course, as well, uh, there's going to be the question, what is the name of that child? Well, here we have something of a, a birth announcement as well, and It's very uh, unique because it's an announcement that took place many centuries before the birth took place. We have here a predictive prophecy from the uh, words of Isaiah, and he's speaking about the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And I'd like you to notice how it is that you see the two natures of Christ set forth in the words of Scripture that... This uh, child who is born is both God and man. So how do we, we prove that from this passage? Well, you notice that it begins with those words, Unto us a child is born. It's the normal word for a human child, for a baby boy. It speaks of one who is actually human, one who possesses all the normal qualities of a baby. This is a human being that is spoken of here. And the fact that this uh, Messiah is indeed a a true human being is something that is uh, testified to in many other portions of Isaiah's prophecy. We read in... Uh, Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 2, he shall grow up before him, that is, he the Messiah shall grow up before him, that is, God, as a tender plant and as a root of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and so on. You see, he's a, a normal man here, just as you would walk uh, beside a small uh, bit of shrubbery and see it as, as not very important. So also, the Messiah is to grow up as a normal human being. There'd be nothing about his appearance that would be especially desirable or especially wondrous. No, he is a, an ordinary man, a fully human being, Uh, Messiah that is spoken of here. And so this is testified against all those who would deny the full humanity of Christ. And indeed, there have been those throughout the the history of the church. In the the days of the Reformation, for example, there was a man named uh, Mino Simons, who was a leader of a group that became known as the Mennonites and uh, this uh, man was uh, converted out of Roman Catholicism, and he was heavily persecuted for um, breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church. But uh, one of the things that, that he held to was this doctrine of the celestial flesh. And the idea here is that the, the human nature of the, the man Jesus, it wasn't a real human nature, but it was an eternal substance that existed in in heaven and somehow came into uh, the Virgin uh, Mary. And um, it was tasked with the reformers to deny this doctrine and to say, no, we we hold to the biblical teaching that this is a true human Messiah, a true human Savior that we confess. But you notice that uh, as our our confession teaches, that the humanity of Christ is also affirmed together with the deity of Christ. The idea here is that uh, he uh, continues true and eternal God, that there's never a point at which Jesus surrenders his deity as true God. And this is Uh, taught, as we see in Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So isn't that a striking thing? This very same one who is born as a child is given as a son. um, It seems that the, the sense there is that he is a son even prior to his birth. And of course, this is Speaking of his eternal sonship, the fact that he is eternally begotten of the Father and eternally relating to his heavenly Father as a son to a father. So it's a a teaching of the Trinity, which we've examined in this uh, study in the past. And uh, if that wasn't enough, you see how his names that are given according to the prophet in this verse... They include the name the Mighty God. Now, this very Messiah would have the name Mighty God. And so you have an affirmation of these two things, that he is both man and he is God. Two distinct natures. And the wonderful thing about this uh, teaching of the Scripture, which is also taught in our catechism, is that these two natures are united in one person. If you want to know a fancy word for that, theologians talk about the hypostatic union, which just means the personal union. And what uh, that means is that we're not talking about uh, two saviors here. We're not talking about one savior is God and the other Savior is man, and so we can speak of two Jesus Christs. No, Uh, this one person, this one Christ, has both the divine nature and the human nature. And thus you see how, how both of these things are ascribed to the one person who has these glorious names, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Names that set forth his excellency as a mediator. As our catechism uh, puts it uh, in, ver- in question 36. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he is our mediator. He is the one that stands between a sinful human race and a holy God and brings them together in friendship. So as the counselor, he brings wisdom, divine wisdom, but as as a human prophet. As uh, As the mighty God, he has all the power of God to bring about this salvation. As the everlasting Father, speaking of his care and providing for his, his people, he ensures that they have everything that they need, both in life and in death. And as the Prince of Peace, he, he brings that state of spiritual and eternal peace between God and man. Two natures, one person, one mediator. What a glorious truth. And because there is one Christ, and these two natures are united in him, We may worship Him. We may serve Him. We may know Him. What a glorious thing to have the true Christ revealed unto us. How we must contend for this truth against all those who would confuse it, who would change it, who would deny it. Such a central part of our faith, the two natures of Christ. But I'd also like to notice uh, that our catechism also speaks of the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy. The God's eternal Son, who is and continues true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things sin excepted. Now, this uh, wonderful miracle of the virgin birth is, is testified to in our catechism and, and uh, is, is certainly implied by uh, the text that we have before us in Isaiah chapter 9. If you look at the very end of verse uh, uh, verse 7, it says that it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will perform this, that it's something very miraculous when we consider both the birth of this great Messiah as well as the, the kingdom that will come from him. But of course, uh, in the, the full uh, um, revelation of this great truth of miraculous birth of, of Christ. We see that in uh, the New Testament book of Luke most explicitly. And, and children, I'm sure you're familiar with that story, aren't you? There's that angel Gabriel who comes to Mary and tells her that most special news, that Mary is going to give birth to a baby. And there we uh, have Mary, and she's uh, asking, well, how can this be of I've never been married before. I've never known a man. And and we see how the angel replies to her in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35. And the angel answered and said, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. And it's interesting, in that very same passage, it talks about how this great miracle worked by the Holy Ghost of of this, um, this baby boy being born, both God and man, in the womb of the Virgin, is a fulfillment of prophecy. Because you see in verse 32, it says, he shall be called great and shall be called the Son of the Highest and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. There's something about David which is so important to the incarnation of Christ. Something that our catechism draws out, that uh, the angel Gabriel draws out, and also our, our text draws out. Because you'll notice in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7, Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. So we have um, something about uh, Jesus being born as the son of David that's of particular importance. Uh, according to the scriptures. And, and I think that uh, it's important to understand that there was a very special promise given to David. David was, of course, a, a great king that was brought from the sheepfold all the way to the highest position in, in Israel. He was was a great king and a great warrior. And you have the Lord entering into a very special covenant or or promise, oath with uh, this David that he would, would have from his descendants the greatest king this world has ever known. And you see that spoken of in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7 in particular. So uh, there you have the prophet Nathan, and in verse uh, 12 to 16, you see how he he. Gives special promises concerning his legacy as a king and the dynasty that will be taking place after he dies. So, this is what he says, and uh, the prophet says to David And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he uh, commit iniquity, I will chasten him and the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. Now that part of the prophecy is especially concerning his son Solomon. It was Solomon who would build a house to the Lord, who would um, have a very special role in, in expanding the kingdom in the days of of his uh, rule, but he would also be chastened for his sins. But look at what the prophet says next. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee, and thine house, and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. That's ultimately the, the promise that is given unto David, that, that his throne would be an everlasting throne, his kingdom, an everlasting dominion. And you see how that promise is fleshed out by Isaiah, how it's, it's fulfilled in the days of of the incarnation. And, and it's so important to understand, really, the fullness of the gospel. I don't know if, if you is, who are parents, you've had this experience, you're you're opening the Bible around family worship, and you're explaining different things that you read in the Bible to your children, and you, you come to these parts of the Bible that are just all family genealogies. You come to those genealogies that, that trace those family lines going all the way from Adam, all the way to Jesus Christ, and begin to to ask the question Well, what is the relevance of all these things and you come to see that in the fulfillment of these prophecies through family lines we have the all uh, encompassing power of God over all things working out his saving purposes in Jesus Christ, working through weak and sinful people like David, like Solomon, and all the way up to Someone like Mary, the descendant of David. And if God's power cannot be thwarted, if he can work through sinful people like you and I, what hope does that give us? I think of that beggar by the name of Bartimaeus where it said he was outside uh, the city Jericho, begging, and he, he heard Jesus was coming past, and he, he cried out unto him, and he said, Lord Jesus, thou Son of David, have mercy on me. Something about the awareness that God keeps his, his promises. Also those of prophecy that everything in the Scripture will be fulfilled and not one word shall fall to the ground. It, it encouraged Bartimaeus to plead upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. Is that the effect that the Word of God has on you? When you, when you come to see that this is real history... And a prophecy that was given to David is fulfilled a thousand years later in the birth of his his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that, that really tell you that these things are true also for you? And that even one such as you, you can cast yourself on the mercy of God and Jesus Christ, knowing that everything that he says will be fulfilled. And so that means that and when we come to a text like Isaiah uh, chapter 9, and we hear that, uh, that word again that's spoken here in, in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment, and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Then we're reminded that the growth of Christ's kingdom and the expansion of his kingdom, the well-being of his church, this is secured by the zeal of the Lord, not by human effort, not by human strength or strategies. No, it's the power of God and his all-consuming love and zeal for his own that will bring all that he has spoken about. His kingdom will never end. So we see that in, uh, in the second place, not only the two natures of Christ, but also Christ's fulfillment of prophecy. And I'd like to draw your attention to the, the third thing that our catechism is especially drawing out here, and that is the sinlessness of Christ. The sinlessness of Christ. So look again the answer to question 35 that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things sin accepted. That's what the Catechism is really emphasizing, that this one who was born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, was conceived completely sinless, without the least bit of sin in his heart or soul. And it goes on to really emphasize that this is is what uh, really allows us to profit from this doctrine in order to know the, the joy that this can bring to the to the heart of the child of God. That he is our mediator, it says in answer to 36, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. What's really saying is that um, the fact that Christ was conceived and born in such a miraculous way, not only as a virgin, not only as one who is true God and true man, but as one who is completely sinless. This brings such hope unto the child of God who knows that we are great sinners, that we deserve the wrath and judgment of God. It is the sinlessness of Christ that gives us hope. And you'll notice that this is uh, spoken about in our text where it says that his uh, kingdom will be ordered and that he will establish it with judgment and with justice. So perfect moral uprightness will be characteristic of his kingdom. He will conduct himself with perfect moral integrity and obedience unto the law of God. And of course this was especially emphasized, wasn't it, in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 53, which we read together, where it it really emphasized this. It said in verse 9 of that chapter, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Completely without violence, completely without lies in his mouth. Here is one who is perfectly righteous. And indeed that's said in verse 11. It says, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. This is such an important thing that we understand. The only reason that this one could bear our iniquities is that he had none of his own to bear whatsoever. He was the perfectly righteous servant of the Lord so that we, his most imperfect and often unrighteous servants, could find a perfect covering for all of our sins through his perfect obedience. This is so vital that we understand, congregation, that when we would consider the wondrous grace of God in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there we have not only the Son of God coming down into this world, into our world of misery and sin and death, but he comes as the sinless one to perform all righteousness in our place. And such would never have been, if not for the miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit, a true man and true God-man born without sin. Congregation, is this the Christ that you are resting your heart and soul upon today? Can you really say with our catechism He is our mediator. He is my mediator. Can you say that today? If you cannot place yourself under his righteousness as a covering for your sin, then you are exposed to that just judgment of God. You cannot stand in that place. You will experience his, his wrath. But hear this Savior. Hear of his wonderful names. Hear of his wonderful kingdom. Hear how he saves sinners to the uttermost. Believe upon him today. And may you come to know as well peace through this princess.